Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Michelle Leslie. Before we get started tonight, we just want to give a big shout out to all of our regular Patreon donors. Big thank yous to David, Monica, Miyoshi, yes. Kate, Leslie, Robbie, Shannon, Jessica, Mona, Diane S., Terry, Carol, Samantha, and Diane O. Thank you so much for your support of A Word Fitly Spoken. We could not do what we do without you. No, we could not. Thank you so much. And and tonight it's time for one of our favorite features, and we hope one of yours too. It's another episode of Glad You Asked. Uh, we're going to do this in two parts because we had so many great questions come in. And if you're a new listener, Glad You Asked is uh, our Q&A feature where we take questions from listeners and we do our best to give you biblical answers that point you to Christ and His Word and your local church, of course. And Michelle, our listeners sent in, like I said, a truckload of great questions. So let's see how many of them we can answer tonight. Yes, we will jump right in. And I'd like to get started with a question that was sent in about our most recent episode, Is Women Preaching a Secondary Issue? This came to my email from Joan. And Joan writes, Hello, Michelle. On your recent episode with Amy Spreeman, you clearly taught that this subject of women preaching is a primary issue. Yet in the Open Hearts 2022 Women's Conference, your fellow teacher Aaron Coates taught that it was a secondary issue. I thought that con- Conference speakers always agree on the primary doctrines. Just wondering how you handle that. Hmm. Okay, so Joan says, you clearly taught that this subject of women preaching is a primary issue. Well, Joan, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid you misheard or maybe you didn't get a chance to listen to the whole episode or something like that because I'm sorry, but that's not what I said. And look, that happens to all of us. We mishear things, especially me as I'm getting older and especially with my husband, unfortunately. (laughs) We're both going Um, deep over here. (laughs) Yeah, I'm telling you. But it's it's no big deal. We still love you all to pieces, but I'm going to have to re-clarify a few things here. One of the the big advantages of scripting our episodes, and boy, do I wish I could script some conversations with my husband sometimes, <laughs> but uh, to, make, good, yes. to, to go back and see what I said wrong there, um, but that Amy and I can look back at the script and see exactly what we said. And you can too, because we link our scripts in the show notes of every episode. What I clearly said was this, quote, And one of the things we need to explain is that when we say that women preaching isn't a secondary issue, we're not saying women preaching isn't a secondary issue, it's a primary issue. So don't be confused about that. What we're saying is that women preaching isn't a secondary issue or a primary issue or a tertiary issue, and it's certainly not an issue of adiaphora or Christian liberty, unquote. That is what I clearly said. That's on page five of the script if you'd like to go back and look at it. And it's probably somewhere in the middle of the episode if you'd like to go back and listen. Now, a few minutes later, Amy and I did say that women preaching undermines the primary issues of salvation, the authority of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture, but not that women preaching is a primary issue itself. The entire point of that episode was that women preaching does not belong in the theological triage system of primary, secondary, and tertiary issues at all. It belongs in a completely separate category, the category of sin. 
We discussed what the primary theological issues are in our episode, What are Essentials and Non-Essentials, which we recommended in our introductory remarks uh, that everyone go back and listen to. So those would be issues like the ones I just mentioned, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, and so on. So to answer the second part of your question, Joan, yes, Aaron Coates and I have both been speakers at the Open Hearts in a Closed World online women's conference for the past three years. And by the way, I can't recommend her or that conference highly enough. Uh, And yes, I have no doubt that Aaron and I are in full agreement on all of the primary doctrines, because if someone disagrees with the primary doctrine, that person is not a Christian. That's what makes the primary doctrines primary. And I don't do conferences with people who aren't Christians. Now, I either didn't hear or don't recall whatever Aaron said about women preaching being a secondary issue, but I think I know Aaron well enough to know that if she did say that, what she most likely meant was that women preaching is not a primary doctrine or a doctrine that salvation hinges upon, like all of the actual primary doctrines. And I would be in full agreement with her about that as well. So Aaron and I do agree on the actual primary doctrines, and we agree that women preaching isn't a primary doctrine. Amy, anything you'd like to add on that? Well, I'm a little envious, and I know that's sinful, but I'd like to meet Erin sometime. (laughs) (laughs) She's great. great. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we can interview her on on a future episode here at Awake That We Spoken. That would be fun. Uh, But yes, uh, this is uh, women preaching is a sin issue for sure. It's it's rebellion. So if you belong to a church where a woman is preaching on a Sunday morning or teaching men or having a position of authority over men in your church, you need to bring this issue to your elders who um, had better be men, by the way. And if it remains unresolved, um, you're going to need to find a church where leadership is not rebelling against God's word on this issue or on any other sin issue. All right, here's our next question, and it comes via private message to our A Word Fitly Spoken Facebook page from a woman named, well, she just puts the letter N, so that's fine. And N writes, quote, the church I used to attend is not doctrinally sound. I still receive the church's weekly newsletter, which the pastor signs with his pronouns. And I was very disturbed by this photo. And she sent us in a photo. She attached it. Um, and let me just tell you what the photo was. Uh, it's a, a photo of the front of this church entrance with a large banner in very colorful, multicolored stripes that says, you are loved. And the caption from the church uh, that they posted on Facebook reads, we are loving our cool new flag. Come to a church where you are celebrated, not just tolerated. Hashtag God loves you, no exceptions. And then uh, he put a bunch of hearts with all the colors of the rainbow plus black and brown. Okay, so N continues. What upsets me is that my grandparents still attend this church, as do several people in the neighborhood. Should I just let this go, or do you think this flag should be called into question? I hope it's not just bitterness or sin in my heart, but it hurts me that God's place of worship has this flag displayed for all the town to see. Well, Anne, um, this is not just the flag or banner, but the Facebook caption on that post that clearly states, what that flag means to this church. It really leaves no doubt that the intention is to invite people who are, you know, LGBTQ or, you know, whatever those letters are nowadays, but to be a part of this church body. 
Well, what is a church body? It is the people that God has regenerated and called to himself, his bride, the justified, the saved. Are we perfect? No, but our sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ. We've repented and we are his own. Uh, It's not people who are openly and proudly rebelling against God who are not saved. You know, maybe they will be someday. God knows who are his and who will be in his timing. And we know that those who are homosexuals or engaging in any kind of sexual sin are not really in their own sin category. We are either washed clean and forgiven or we need to be. Those are, you know, kind of the, you're saved or you're not. Um, but these folks need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They need their sins forgiven. They need to be evangelized too. Now, the local church really isn't supposed to be an evangelistic outreach. It's really a gathering of believers who are there to learn about God and to learn how to walk worthy and follow Jesus. That's what the church is for. But you know what? Uh, There are visitors from time to time, right? And if they do visit a church, it needs to be a solid Bible-teaching church that truly does love them and will clearly articulate the gospel to them. That's what they need. This church that was in the photograph is going to celebrate them in their sin. They say so right there on their Facebook. So, no, and I don't think you're being bitter or sinful at all. And uh, having been in your shoes at one time, not quite to this degree, but um, you you are made to feel like any, any um, objections you have makes you bitter and contentious and all of that. Uh, that's not happening. You're not being sinful for asking this question and wondering if you should warn your loved ones about this. They may not have seen the post that this pastor or church uh, did, although they probably by now have seen the banner if they're going to church. So I would suggest that you ask them about this. Maybe start with your grandparents who are still going there. Uh, You might say, hey, grandma and grandpa, I saw something that has me very concerned and I want to get your take on it. And then tell them about the banner and the caption that you saw and ask, ask them, what are your thoughts on this? And then let them tell you where they stand on this. You know, whether they're shocked or they're accepting of this are going to tell you where they are at spiritually. And then gently explain why you are concerned and that you're worried for them and the dear ones at your former church. And tell them, you know, I still love these people. Uh, tell them that you're praying for them. And then, of course, make sure you do that. You you want to be praying for the people who are still stuck in uh, this deceptive church. Michelle, any thoughts on that? Well, I just completely agree with everything that you've said. It's, it's very important that you brought out the point that church is not for the unchurched. Church is right. for the saved, you know, and, and it's a place for church, for Christians to be trained to go out and share the gospel with those who are not unsaved. And then mm-hmm. I think also your, your, um, your advice to in about talking to her grandparents was really important. The only extra thing I would throw in there is that, um, I believe somewhere in her her letter or her message to us, she said that uh, she had not been saved when she was at that church, I think is what she said. And so it's a possibility that your grandparents are not saved either. So if, mm-hmm. if they don't. If they don't see this as problematic or if they defend this um, as loving and or whatever, um, you may want to consider that they might not be saved either. And so you may want yeah. to sort of back up and, and discuss the gospel with them. And if you need some help with that, we've got a great, uh, a great gospel presentation on our 
website. It's at a word fitly spoken dot life. And I believe the tab says good news. So if you need a little help yes. talking to them about the gospel and there's some good gospel materials there as well, but hopefully they will, um, you know, hopefully they do know Christ and they will see this as problematic and maybe you can help them get into a good solid church after discussing yeah. and, this. And don't with forget them. about those neighbors too that are still going right. there. Um, yeah, th- that would be an easy conversation to have too. Just bring up the sign. Have you seen it? Uh, what do you think? Yeah. And then, like Michelle said, uh, they need to hear the gospel if they're accepting of this. Right. Absolutely. All righty. On to our next question. This was sent in as a private message to our A Word Fitly Spoken Facebook page. So we are just going to say that this is a question from Jay. And Jay says, do you have a favorite Bible translation? Also, do you have a translation you would recommend to avoid? And if so, why? Okay. Oh, let me- I love that. Isn't that a great question? I, I, I love, love it, it when I love it when women especially are are seeking to be holy and they're pursuing Christ and yeah. they're looking for more knowledge and they're you know they're trying to get as close to Christ as they can. It's just it's so encouraging. Yes. Well, let me first say that I wrote an article on this a while back that has all kinds of helpful links and information, you know, more than I'll be able to give you in the podcast. And we've got that linked up in the show notes. So be sure to go and check that out. Personally, I have two favorite translations, not just one. I can't narrow it down to one. Uh, the, the first favorite for me is the English Standard Version or the ESV. And then my second favorite or equally my favorite is the uh, New American Standard Bible, the NASB. They are both highly accurate. They're both easy to read. I've been using the MacArthur ESV Study Bible, which I highly recommend. Ah, it is excellent. I've been using that too. for about... Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? Um, it is. So I've been using that for about eight to 10 years, I think. And then before that, I used the NASB for about 20 years. So they're both really, really good. A couple of other really good translations are the Lexham English Bible. And that one is uh, my husband's favorite. So, and I use it a lot, too, because it's got a lot of good uh, study notes and stuff like that. So that's the Lexham English Bible. And then also the Legacy Standard Bible, which is a newly revised uh, yeah, newly revised version of the NASB. Of course, those are not the only good translations. There are others, but Jay asked for my favorites, and those are my favorites. So, and then she also wants to know about Bibles to avoid. And unfortunately, there are several. I really would not even call these Bibles. <laughs> I didn't yeah. want to call them translations because they're not translations, and I didn't want to call them Bibles either because they're not really Bibles. So, avoid these books, okay? Um, <laughs> First, you want to avoid paraphrases. When you're looking for a Bible, you want to look for a good translation, not a paraphrase. You want to know what God said through Paul or Peter or John, not what somebody 2,000 years later thinks about what God said through Paul or Peter or John. You want to get as close as you possibly can to the original wording that was written. So you definitely want to avoid these. The message, the voice, and the passion translation. Those are not only paraphrases, but they were written by some of the worst false teachers out there. So just stay completely away from those. And also 
If you're around the same age as Amy and I are, and you're still carrying around that avocado green hardback edition of the Living Bible, you remember those, Amy? Well, you weren't a yep. Christian back then, so you probably don't remember <laughs> I know, those. I, I, I still found one at a garage yeah. sale. <laughs> They're still out there. I, within the last few years, I have seen people carrying those around. Um, yeah. But anyway, the Living Bible, you know, if you still have that, you're still using that, it is time to retire that puppy and get yourself a decent <laughs> translation. You don't need a paraphrase. I've heard all the arguments. Well, I just, I can't understand the translations. They are too hard for me. Mm -hmm. Listen, if you can read and understand the Living Bible or the message, you can read and understand the ESV. As a former teacher, I can tell you they are basically on the same reading level, okay? And then one more version I would recommend against is the Amplified Bible, it does this thing where it'll give you multiple synonyms for the same word or phrase. Like like it'll say, and David reclined on his couch, and then in parentheses out to the side, it'll say, or sofa, or divan, or bed, or cot, you know, and on and on. And sometimes the words that they suggest in parentheses don't fit the context of the verse or what the author intended. So you could get an incorrect understanding of what the verse actually means. The Bible isn't Mad Libs. It's not multiple choice. It's not a thesaurus. Good translators know how to make a decision and choose the appropriate word. And, you know, not for nothing, but the first and really the only time I've ever seen or heard the Amplified Bible being used is by Joyce Meyer. So you can take that and do what you want with it. But all that being said, I would also avoid the Amplified Bible. Amy, what about you? What's your favorite Bible translation? And did I miss any that should be avoided? Well, I just want to say I, I agree with what you said. You've named the trifecta of garbage I for sure would stay away from. Uh, the message, the passion, and the voice. Yikes. Uh, the message was gaining so much popularity a decade ago. I, I believe it was released in 1993. But uh, anyway, in the early 2000s and, two, you know, 2008, 2008 and 10 and so forth, uh, a lot of people were calling it, well, this is my companion Bible, which uh, makes me cringe even now. But it was gaining so much popularity uh, when I started doing the Stand Up For The Truth radio program. And you know, we spent quite a bit of time with various guests uh, dissecting and comparing it to the versions in which actual teams of scholars and translators strived to deliver the most accurate Bible possible. Uh, and of course, it took them years. The message, and I call it the mess age, was cobbled <laughs> together from some guy on his computer in his basement. He even says that's where he was. And and that was the late uh, Eugene Peterson. Uh, he passed away in 2018. And uh, he was a progressive pastor for 30 years. And it turns out he was into the New Age, mysticism. And uh, in his later years, he uh, came out in support of gay marriage. Uh, but he said that he started out in his basement and just wanted to, quote, let go and be playful with uh, starting with the Sermon on the Mount. He said it took him about 10 minutes to cobble together uh, this playful version. Wow, 10 minutes. Okay. So just one of many examples. There are so many. Um, and I'll, I'll add some additional articles with Michelle's there. But here's how he translated the Lord's Prayer uh, from Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Uh, first, this is from the NASB. It says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, that's the real thing. Here is the message version. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best. As above, so below. And that phrase right there, as above, so below, anybody who's ever been in the New Age recognizes that instantly as a New Age teaching, as above, so below. And then uh, Eugene Peterson's message says, keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge. You're in charge. Okay, so that's how uh, his version of the Lord's Prayer ends there. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the message, again, that is one to stay away from. Um and I, by the way, I, I've just started reading my my Legacy Bible, and I really enjoy it. Um, my regular go-to is also my ESV. Uh, the MacArthur Study version of that is is really good, too. I've been reading that one for years, and it's what I bring to church also. Um, but I keep one at home. It's a, a daily reading plan, and that one is from the MacArthur Study Bible. It's really a, a nice way. It's got the dates on there. You can use it year after year, and it's a great way to start the morning uh, when I'm barely awake, and I just uh, I want the word, and, and it's uh, one that's based on the uh, NASB. So, um, and by the way, I started out, my very first Bible was an NIV, and uh, I, I'm, I don't use that one anymore. So, Oh, let go. me throw some, can I throw something in there about the NIV? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. let me throw something in there. The um, That's a, another one that I would avoid these days. The yeah. 1984 edition of the NIV was pretty good. It was it was like the ESV is now basically. Mm-hmm. But after when they started revising it in later years, they put in gender neutral language, you know, instead of saying oh, his right. they would say there or whatever. I forget all the examples. Uh, I forgot grief. to put this in my list of the <laughs> ones to avoid, but that that's also one to avoid. They So you want to avoid the TNIV yes. or really basically anything that came out after 1984. The 1984 yeah. is still is not still in print, but you could find uh, that at a thrift store or something like that. But I would avoid anything, yeah. any NIV, any version of the NIV that came out after 1984 because of the gender I, yeah, neutral I, language and stuff like that. Agreed. So. Totally. And that's the one I first got. I believe it was an, an you know, that right. version that had just the, the, the correct uh, male, female versions. <laughs> the correct yeah, pronouns, that's the one I, yeah, that's the one I used when I was a kid. That's, that was probably yeah. my first major Bible that I used most of the time was the, the NIV and it was a decent uh, translation, but not anymore. All right, Michelle. Well, here's our next question. Uh, this one is from Chelsea on Facebook and she asked this. Do false teachers know that they are false teachers and therefore knowing they are wolves in sheep's clothing on purpose? Or do they think that what they're doing and teaching is right or that they think they're walking in truth? My guess is that they think they are right and therefore the touch not the Lord's anointed. But I was just curious as to your thoughts. Well, I just 
Thank you. I just love this question. I've often wondered the same thing, Chelsea. I don't think we could really throw out a blanket statement for all of them. Um, you know, and obviously we're not going to know what's in their, their minds and their little hearts, but, um, only the Lord knows about that. But the ones that I have interacted with or whom I've known personally or, uh, you know, have just had relationship with seem to be convicted and convinced that they are doing what is right according to God. And they seem to fall, uh, just from my experience, um, I got to clear my throat here. <clears throat> and they seem to fall into two types of people. And the first one is those who feel that they are called to be, I guess, super lovers to the hurting to the point that they soften or change God's word because it's just too harsh they feel on people who don't want to hear about sin, repentance, God's wrath, judgment, hell, the atonement, and so forth. And anyone who teaches these things uh, as part of the regular uh, gospel message are hateful Pharisees. So their way becomes the better way, the new and improved way. Um, you might see this, the, the seeker-friendly emergent churches and uh, the gay-affirming progressive churches fall into that category. And they believe in their hearts that their ministry is the change that is needed in today's world. Uh, they've become very carnal and worldly. And then the other type I've noticed are, are people who say that they have evolved in their thinking. Maybe they'll, they'll say that they've deconstructed. And uh, now that they understand scripture a lot better, they'll say something like, you know, I used to believe what I thought was biblical, but now the Lord has shown me this new way. Uh, usually this is based on an experience they've had, perhaps a dream. Uh, people in the NAR often fall into this trap, and others will find ways to twist the Bible to fit their rebellious trajectory. Uh, we're actually, unfortunately, Michelle, we're watching women who used to be biblically sound teachers of women. Now uh, they gain this whole new understanding, and they're ascending to pulpits to teach men on Sunday mornings. Um, I'm going to name a name here. If, if you're familiar with Amy Bird and her trajectory, uh, that's been happening to her for the last several years. And just last month, she said she was invited to preach at a church. Preach. And so she did. And she is sincerely shocked that anyone would question why she is suddenly preaching. She believes her understanding of scripture is far superior to yours and ours. And that's just that. Uh, she seems like a very nice person, but uh, sincerely, she, she needs to see, uh, her eyes need to be opened. And we saw that, of course, happen with Beth Moore as, as well over the years. And I guess, Michelle, the third type, uh, I would say, would be those who teach for shameful gain. They're just flat-out wolves. Uh, the money and the fame are to be protected at all costs for them. Uh, these are the uh, anointed ones you're not supposed to touch or question. Um, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, uh, Stephen Furtick of Elevation Church have amassed riches and mansions galore and can afford bodyguards so that no one actually can get near. Uh, these wolves may or may not know that they are false teachers. They are all certainly well aware of the critiques of their uh, teachings, but they just don't seem to be bothered by that. So, uh, Michelle, what do you think? think. Yeah, I completely agree. I think um, probably the vast majority of fast, false teachers think that 
they're saved and think that they understand God's word and that they're preaching it right and that everybody who conflicts with them or who um, tries to call them to account and point out what scripture actually says are just haters and legalists and whatnot. I'm sure there have been uh, some people few and far between, particularly I'm thinking about televangelist type of people, you know, like the typical 80s televangelist that you think of. Um, There have probably been some people like that who saw how much money was being made and how much money came in to these so-called ministries and thought, hey, this will be a great way to make money. And I I can figure out how to fake this just like these people, you know, I can fake their mannerisms or whatever and break in a lot of money that way. And so there have probably been a few people here and there who have done that. But I think by and large, most of the people that are false teachers probably think that they're Christians and uh, and try to convince you that they're Christians as well. But I do want to just I add one more thing that w- what really wasn't her question, but is kind of related to her question. Whether or not we think someone is a Christian, you know, and I'm thinking of really of false teachers here. It doesn't matter whether we think that person is a Christian or not, or whether that person seems to be, uh, you know, walk the walk and talk the talk. We need to look at the fruit of that person's ministry and teaching and all of that. And if it doesn't match up with Scripture, then whether we think that person is a Christian or not, that person is to be avoided. We're not to use that person's materials, go to her conferences, read her books, follow her on social media and all that. So it's an interesting discussion to have as to whether people, you know, these people are really saved or not, or whether they think they're saved or not or whatever. But the bottom line is that we're to judge them by what they teach and how they behave as to whether or not their teaching should be welcome in our church or or personally, you know, individually, if we should use their stuff for Bible study time or whatever. So just a little little lanyard there for that question. Amen. Um, that, is, that is Cajun for a little something extra, by the way. Um, okay. <laughs> just use that word all the time, and I forget that people don't all know what that means. Okay. So the <laughs> next question was sent into my Facebook private messages. So this is from T. And T says, my family and I have recently left a church where many of the elders, including the pastor, have taught that while a six-day creation is one possibility, there are many other options. And we, quote, can't be sure it was six days because the Bible doesn't say 24 hours, unquote. As a result, an associate pastor, an elder, and many members have left. We are firm believers in a six-day literal creation. However, we continue to be told, even after leaving, that we cannot be dogmatic about this. Yet we believe that this is a crucial doctrine to stand firm on. Do you hold fast to it? to a six-day literal creation. Do you have any advice for conversations we continue to have with church members from our prior church, both those who are troubled and consider leaving and those who don't think it's a big deal? Okay, so yes, I believe in a literal six-day creation because that is what the Bible teaches. That's pretty much what all Christians believed until Darwin came along and sowed division and doubt. And, you know, ever since then, we've had professing Christians trying to cram the godless fairy tale of evolution into Genesis 1 and 2. And let me say this, too, T, for our other listeners— If the church you're going to is outright overtly teaching that a macroevolutionary theory is fact or that it's on the same level as what the Bible teaches, you know, you need to go ahead and start looking for a new church. 
because going back to our discussion a few minutes ago of primary doctrines, the method that God used for creating the world isn't a primary doctrine itself, but just like women preaching, it undermines the primary doctrines um, of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And that's like gangrene. It's not going to stay confined to your church's beliefs about creation. It's going to spread to all of your church's other beliefs, too. If, however, and please listen carefully and don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? If your church properly teaches the creation account, but then just kind of throws this little caveat in at the end that, you know, we can't be sure it was six days because the Bible doesn't say 24 hours, and that's as far as it goes, and your church is doctrinally sound in every other way, and it's the most doctrinally sound church available to you in your area— I would kindly talk with the pastor about it, but if he says, yeah, we're going to keep throwing that little caveat in there every time we teach Genesis, it's not an ideal situation, but I think you could stay at that church and and just keep praying that God will open your pastor's eyes and correct him, because staying at a church like that when you don't have any other more doctrinally sound options is better than not having any church to attend at all. So back to T's question. Do you have advice for conversations we continue to have with church members from our prior church, both those who are troubled and consider leaving and those who don't think it's a big deal? Okay, again, I wrote an article about this called How to Leave a Church, and we've got that linked up for you in the show notes. So check that out. But it kind of depends on what you mean by this little phrase, conversations we continue to have with people from your previous church. If what you mean by that is that you continue to approach friends from your former church and you continue to bring up this subject perhaps as a way to convince them to leave, I really would not advise that. Listen, I get it. Amy gets it. We know what it's like when you feel like people you love are in danger of false doctrine. It's like seeing your toddler sitting in the middle of a road with an 18-wheeler bearing down on him. You just want to you know, scream and snatch him out of harm's way. But proactively going to members of your former church, if that's what you're doing, and maybe that's not what you're doing, but if that's what you're doing, that's not the way to do it. If you just keep going back to them and back to them and keep on talking about this. But if what you mean is that the fo- the members of your former church are approaching you and asking why you left, just tell them the truth without, you know, without bad-mouthing the church or the pastor or anybody else. You know, you can just say something like, this is a doctrinal issue that we can't compromise on, so we've decided to find a church whose doctrine we align with more closely. If, you know, if they don't understand the biblical issue and they seem genuinely interested in learning, then explain it to them or send them some information from Answers in Genesis or something like that. If they don't think it's a big deal, um, it's not your job to argue them into thinking that it is. You can offer them some information, but if they turn you down, you know, you need to graciously accept that. Opening their eyes is the Holy Spirit's job. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And then in Mark 6, 11, when Jesus was sending out the twelve, he said, And if any place will not receive you and, the, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. 
Now, I'm not saying that you need to call members of your former church dogs or pigs or shake off the dust of your feet at them. My point is that Jesus knew that there are going to be people who won't listen when you try to talk plain old biblical sense into them. And he didn't teach us to try to keep convincing them and argue them into accepting what we're saying. He teaches us that, you know, we've given them the truth. They've rejected it. Now move on and let him handle it from here on out. Amy, I know you also believe in a literal six-day creation. Do you have any other advice for T? No, I, I think your advice for T was uh, right on. I would agree with you and just underline that it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict. Um, you know, we all want to be that Holy Spirit, but we can't be. That's not our job. So, um, but please, T, do continue to speak truth. Um, I, I would just add that when my husband and I left Roman Catholicism many years ago, it was in the late 80s, the first church we went to, um, the pastor said, hey, you don't have to believe the literal creation in Genesis in order to be a Christian, just follow Jesus. And um, I hadn't even cracked open a Bible by that point, I'm sure. And my undiscerning and unlearned brain even then knew that this was somehow problematic. And because of my own uh, liberal upbringing as a kid, and because of this pastor's statement, uh, it was going to be many years before I could, in my mind, reconcile the six-day literal creation with my own understanding. Um, And you know, that was God's work. That wasn't mine. Um, I am uh, very thankful for the solid Bible teaching and that God opened my eyes to the truth. But many people now from that same church today have now veered off into unbelief. And so um, when you're not clear in your biblical teaching, that's what happens to the sheep. And uh, those teachers are are responsible. They're going to have to stand before God and and really give an account for that because that is just uh, heinous. Um, I also wanted to share that uh, we just had a, a missionary, an elderly man, uh, visit our church, and he was talking about what you were saying earlier, Michelle, about Darwin, about how he could remember when Darwin's influence came into his small town school up here in Wisconsin. And uh, a teacher, new teacher, came into town, and uh, I think he said it was a science teacher, which is kind of funny. But he started teaching uh, Darwinism and, and evolutionism to the high schoolers, and they just started laughing at the teacher. And the teacher said, what, you don't believe in evolution? And uh, the students all said kind of in unison, no, no, of course not. That's silly. So anyway, thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, it's uh, it's widely accepted now. We, we kind of tend to think that it's always been there, but it hasn't. So All right, our next question is from Sherry, and she writes, I heard a preacher say that when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost their image of God, the image of God on them. Uh, He said that we could regain it again by being saved. What are your thoughts on this? Well, Sherry, let's talk about where this says this in the Bible. Uh, The Bible says that we are indeed created in his image. So uh, if you look at Genesis uh, chapter 1, right there in the very beginning, uh, verse 26 and 27, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then if you skip ahead after the, so now then the fall happened in Genesis 9, 6, it says this, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. 
Okay, again, this is after the fall uh, that happened in Genesis 3, and God is still saying that man is made in his image. He is not saying anywhere that I could find that we somehow lost his image when the fall or sin happened. Every human being is an image bearer of the God Almighty that we know, and he's our creator, and every human being was born into sin nature because of the fall. Sin brought separation from God, and because sin entered humanity, we are, or we were, as in the case of Christians, slaves to it in our flesh. But through salvation, we are spiritually born again, right? And it makes us new creatures in Christ. Salvation breaks the penalty of sin. Jesus was the image of God on earth, and as God refines us and sanctifies us, we are to grow in the image and likeness of Christ. That's sanctification. It really helps us in our own humility to remember that the people who are God-haters out there are just as much image bearers as we are, even in their spiritual condition, which is unsaved at this point, because they are who we once were. And it says in First Corinthians that we were washed clean of all of that. But it helps to remember that God loved us while we still hated him, while we were still his enemies. So are we to hate these enemies of God in our society? When we see videos of teachers admitting that they want to gay up our kids or Hollywood women out there shouting proudly about their abortions or whatever other wretched influences there are in our society that we're seeing, are we to hate the enemies of God? Well, here's what Jesus himself says in Matthew 5.43. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sons reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that is a perspective changer. Michelle, what do you think? What are your thoughts on this? Well, my first thought is that I'm really glad that you picked this question to answer because you did such a good job of answering it. When the first time, the first time I read that question, you know, sometimes you'll read a question and all these Bible verses will come to your mind about why that particular thing is wrong or right or whatever. When I read that question at first, that did not happen to me. All I could think of was, well, of course not. That's stupid. (laughs) So (laughs) you did a much better job of answering it than I would have. And I had forgotten about that verse in Genesis 9, which was after the fall. You know, it was after that was in the flood narrative or after the flood, I think. So um, so that was the perfect verse to to just um refute that false teaching. Do you know, is that a false teaching of the New Apostolic Reformation? It sounds kind of familiar. It does sound familiar. I'm not quite sure where that came from. We'll have to research that a little bit and maybe on our next uh, GYA episode, bring that out again. Yeah, maybe so. Or maybe one of our listeners might like to tell us on our social media pages, you know, comment on this episode on social media. And and if you know where that idea came from, let us know because we'll be interested to hear yeah. All right. The final question I'm going to tackle tonight comes to us via my Facebook page from a lady named Gia. And she says, could you explain what proper Christian friendship involves when we are sharing our hearts with our sisters 
or when it is gossip. Should women in the church hold confidences for other women, meaning should a woman explain her side of a situation to other women in the church, and then those women hold that information in confidence? I've been on both sides of this issue, and I'm trying to find out how to walk the fine line of friendship with regard to sharing my heart without becoming a gossip or a party to gossip. Mm. Okay, so I feel like there's a story here, but I don't know the story, so I can't really speak to the specifics of the story. So let me just sort of break this down a little bit in a general way. There are two issues at play in Gia's question, gossip and keeping confidences. And they're they're not necessarily the same thing, and they don't necessarily conflict with each other. But let's talk about gossip first. Basically, gossip is listening to stuff that's none of your business or telling other people stuff that's none of their business. You know, with with social media, we have all really lost the concept of that's none of your business. Everything is everybody's business these days. And that's not a good thing. Like we say down here, mind your business. Okay, (laughs) we all need to learn how to do that better. And bring that back. So, but look, if there's some sort of um, personal conflict going on in the church between Sally and Jane, and Sally comes to you and wants to explain her side of things, here's what you do you say, Sally, honey, I love you, and I understand that you're having a problem with Jane. But it doesn't involve me, and it's none of my business. The two of you need to work it out together. And if you can't, I would suggest you set up an appointment with Pastor Joe and ask him to help the two of you work it out. You know, see, that's one of the great advantages of not being a pastor, ladies. You can send things like that (laughs) to your pastor where it's appropriate. So, um, So that's what I would do in a situation like that or what I would recommend as well in a situation like that. Now let's talk about keeping confidences. First, I want to talk about confidences that you shouldn't keep. Um, If someone is being hurt or being sinned against or she's in danger, a crime has been committed, and someone comes and tells you about it, something like that, and then says, but don't tell anybody, you cannot keep that confidence. And I'm talking about things like the pastor's wife comes to you and tells you that her husband is having an affair. Or your friend says that she saw one of the deacons stealing offering money. Or someone's child is being abused. You know, you can't keep those things a secret. That's not how the Bible tells us to handle those things by keeping them a secret. The Bible instructs us in the proper way to deal with these things. You need to tell the elders or call the police or whatever is appropriate to that particular situation. Another confidence you shouldn't keep. If someone ever comes to you and says, I'm going to tell you this thing, but you can't tell your husband. I've had someone come to me before Mm -hmm. and say that. Um, You know, unless she's planning a surprise party for him, just say, (laughs) then don't tell me. I I don't keep secrets from my husband. Do not keep secrets from your husband, ladies. Just don't do that. It never turns out well. But then in other cases, if someone asks you to keep a confidence, you should keep it because that information doesn't belong to you. It's not your news to share. You're just holding it for someone else. For example, if a friend tells you that she was abused as a child and doesn't want you to tell anybody, as long as the abuser is no longer alive or is no longer a threat to anyone, you keep that confidence for her. Or maybe a friend tells you about a problem that she's having at work or an embarrassing moment from her past or that she's struggling with how to submit to her husband. 
those things told to you in confidence are not yours to share. You keep those things to yourself. I want to recommend a really great resource to you about this. Our friends Nathaniel Jolly and Eki Tepsipornchai recently did a wonderful episode on gossip on their podcast called Truth Be Known, and the link to it is in the show notes, and I would really encourage all of y'all to, to go click on that and give it a listen. Okay, Amy, share your juicy secrets with us about how to avoid <laughs> gossip. Well, first off, I love Eki and Nathaniel. I have not heard that episode, but now I'm going to have to go live, uh, give that a listen. Uh, but you nailed it on the gossip. I, I don't have anything juicy to share, uh, but I do keep a lot of confidences for women who want to share with me. They often do, and they ask how to you know, navigate what they're going through. Um, if anyone asks me to reveal those things, I politely but firmly refuse. And, uh, we, you know, up here in the North, we don't have a mind your business. Uh, we, we don't have a, a saying like that up in Wisconsin. We just kind of say, Oh, well, uh, you know, whatever we say. <laughs> I know I could do that pretty well, but don't, don't get me started. But, uh, yeah, yeah, we don't, uh, <laughs> we don't have anything like that. But ladies, if a juicy conversation about someone comes up, you be the light. You speak up. Are we really supposed to be talking about her like this? You know, you could say that or, or you could say, if you're, maybe you're at a coffee shop, you say, I need to excuse myself. Uh, the dessert tray is calling me. This feels like <laughs> gossip to me and it's really making me uncomfortable. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave this table for a sec. Um, and hopefully that'll inspire people to say, Oh, she's right. It's gossip. Let's not do that. Uh, hopefully, uh, you can do that. Find it in a funny, graceful way to do it, but do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, try to make sure when you say that, you know, this feels like gossip to me. Um, try to make sure when you say that you're saying it in a way that doesn't make you sound snooty and holier than exactly. thou and you're just shaming everybody else. Because, you know, we all say things from time to time that we don't, you know, we shouldn't say or we don't realize yep. that we're saying <laughs> it or whatever. So, you know, try and say it in a we've all done this kind of way. So. Yeah, yep, exactly. Make sure make sure you're humble about that. All right, here's our final question for tonight. And again, there were many more that came in uh, that we are going to cover next time. But this was a private message to our Facebook page from a lady who calls herself L and uh, the letter L. So she says, I have a question about a biblical understanding of investments like 401ks and IRAs. My husband just switched jobs and we need to decide whether or not to enroll in their retirement program. How can Christians ensure that their money is going to righteous causes and we are not funding the wickedness of this world, even if it is right at all to invest? And she says, think about Luke 12, 16 through 21. Well, that's a great question, Al. First, let's, let's talk about that scripture that you mentioned, Luke 12, 16 through 21. And he told him a parable saying, and this is Jesus, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began to think to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and I will store all my grain and my goods there. And I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years to come. Relax, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is demanded of you. And as for all that you have prepared, who will own it now? Such is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich in relation to God. 
Okay, so that's the Bible verse. And the issue here seems to be one of the heart. Uh, Jesus is not speaking against saving now for needs in the future. What he is talking about is where our hearts should be focused. And that, of course, is on him. We are to value the things that God values, trust in his provision instead of our own wealth, and also live wisely. And we're not to be worried about the future. You know, financial stewardship now, including saving for retirement, can uh, enable us to better serve others in our church in the future. We see Joseph, for example, in the Old Testament, exemplify the wisdom of saving. Up, uh, You can read about it in uh, Genesis 41 when he stored provisions for the prophesied famine to come. But there are also lots of passages in the New Testament about working and providing. Um, in Second Thessalonians uh, 3, Paul warns against idleness and reminds the church of how he and his companions worked themselves to provide for themselves while work- serving the church. And then in verse 10 there, Paul says that you know, his role is that the one who is willing to work uh, unwilling to work shall not eat. It seems then that we are responsible to provide financially for ourselves uh, and others and our families whenever possible. So the goal in saving for the future is not a selfish enjoyment of a lavish life after years of work. The goal is not even self-sufficiency, really, since our uh, dependence is always on God. If you do have a 401k, you know that in an instant you can lose it all, right? Remember 2008, and even some of that's going away now, there's no guarantee that the economy will not collapse. Nothing. We have no guarantee of that. So hold that loosely, knowing that there is nothing wrong with participating in 401ks, IRAs, and other financial planning as long as it's not for greed. Uh, we, uh, my husband and I have a Christian friend who, uh, he works for an investment advisory company that's based on honoring God. It's really a neat company. And we actually just sat down with him a couple weeks ago to go over how the market is doing. And of course, it's not all that great. Lots of charts and graphs. My eyes were beginning to cross. My husband, of course, leaning forward, soaking <laughs> it all in. Uh, but you know, there's always one in every family who just can't, you know, it's like, oh, what's going on out the window there? Uh, but anyway, most, most people probably don't do a deep dive of all the stocks that their company portfolio has. And uh, I noticed that, uh, at least in ours, that on one of the stock holdings that uh, the Disney Corporation was listed way down on that list. I said, hey, wait a minute, is that Disney? You know, uh, And of course, we're not supporters of that company and neither is our friend and advisor. So, you know, again, that's just an example. We really have to look deep and then decide, you know, where we want to invest from there. But do keep in mind that the majority of companies in your portfolio are of the world, right? They're not a heavenly thing. You're not investing in in the kingdom by doing this. They are there, uh, those corporations are, to make money for stockholders. We have to remember that. They're not here to do good in the world, and boy, we can sure see that. They're, they're there to actually earn a profit. That's what they're there for. So um, you're, you're not going to find many nonprofit Christian organizations in these 401k portfolios because, you know, they're not in the stock market. Uh, but anyway, that, those are my thoughts on this. It's not a sin to participate paid in these things. And again, hold it loosely. It's worldly. Uh, but you know, just kind of watch to make sure that you, the stocks that you are investing in aren't uh, of a, a highly objectionable uh, nature. Michelle, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's what I would say, too. And I, as you were talking about, uh, you know, just a few seconds ago, towards the end there about uh, most companies are worldly and, and whatnot. I was yeah. reminded about that verse uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians 5, where he talks about 
not associating with people who claim to be brothers, but then are living in sin. But he, before he says that, he prefaces that by saying, I've told you before not to associate with these sinful people, not the sinful people of the world, because you would have to go out of the world if if you weren't to associate with sinful people. This is Michelle's paraphrase from memory. So this is why you need a good translation. Yeah, um, not the message. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. This I'm doing this from memory. I don't have it in front of me. But but that's true. You, I mean, even it says in the Bible, if if you were to avoid everything sinful, you would have to go out of this world because this world right. is sinful. And the people in it who are not born again are sinners. Uh, not that we don't sin as Christians, but um, but that's the majority of the world is is people that uh you know, that are lost that, and they, you know, lost people do lost people things. So, and that's going to spill over into their business. And then um, as you were talking about saving for the future and being prepared and things like that, I completely agree. And one of the things that I was reminded of is that I, I have been studying Titus over the past few weeks uh, because we're starting a new Bible study on Titus on my blog. And so I've been studying that and I've been looking at, uh, the structure of that book and how orderly God is. And that book just mm-hmm. reinforces the orderliness of God. And we see even in creation, you know, we see in Proverbs, uh, he says, uh, go to the ant, you sluggard, you know, and ha- look at how the ant works so hard and, and yeah. uh, stores up its food and whatever. And so I think that orderliness and that, that preparation is just, part of God's design that we are, you know, we're not to put our trust in those things. We're to put our trust in God, but to work hard, to reasonably prepare, to reasonably look ahead to the future and be ready for that is just part of God's design. And, uh, and we shouldn't be, you know, we need to just like everything else, we need to keep that in balance, you know, in a godly balance uh, when we're planning for the future and whatnot. So good answer. Good answer. <laughs> well, listeners, I think that's going to wrap things up for tonight. We are so sorry that we weren't able to get to all of your questions. We do want to let you know that several of the questions that were asked uh, when we called for questions were questions that we have answered in, in previous Glad You Asked episodes or were topics that we covered in other previous episodes. So, um, and so you might want to go back and if you haven't listened to all of the episodes of Glad You Asked, that would be a, or all in all of our previous podcast episodes, that would be a great thing to do. Just go back to the very beginning and it's really not that many and most of our episodes are around a half hour. So you can probably knock those out in a road trip or something. (laughs) So go back and listen to those. Um, And then some of the topics that were asked about, uh, I've covered on my blog or Amy has covered on her website. So if your question wasn't answered, we would encourage you to go to a wordfitlyspoken.life or bereanresearch.org or michellelesley.com. And type some good keywords into those search bars, and hopefully you can get some good information that way. Yeah, and while you're at uh, a wordfitlyspoken.life, uh, do click on that support tab if you wouldn't mind, and just prayerfully consider donating through uh, PayPal or Patreon. That helps to offset the cost of putting together a podcast and having a hosting uh, platform. That all gets pretty pricey, and uh, you know, having the website and and all the costs associated with that. And another great way to support us is to help us get the word out about a word fitly spoken by leaving us a great review, maybe 
five stars if you're so willing, and an encouraging comment on your favorite podcast platform, wherever you listen to us, and by sharing our episodes on social media and with your friends. And of course, the biggest way to support us is through your continued prayer. We really appreciate that. And until next time, remember that God's Word has the answer to life's most important questions and walk worthy.